Welcome to Mind the Roots, the Infinite Emergence podcast. In this podcast, we talk about holistic health, gut-brain connection, and nature. I'm your host, Sasha. In line with last week's episode, today we're talking all about water purification methods. We're going to talk about granulated activated carbon, we're going to talk about ion exchange, reverse osmosis, desalination, and a whole lot more. I took a couple weeks worth of research and boiled it down into one episode for you, so you won't want to miss this. A quick note, we're not talking about any proprietary filters today. This is just about the science. The name brand filter systems you've heard of probably use one or more of these methods that I'm going to share with you. A heads up before we get started. There are so many different chemicals that no one method can be relied upon to remove all of the contaminants. A sequence or combination of methods is needed. For this episode to be maximally useful for you, pause this podcast and visit ewg.org slash tapwater and find out what contaminants are present in your municipal water supply. That will make it much easier to find the water filter that suits your needs. All right, let's get into it. 11 Water Purification Methods Number one, boiling. Boiling is one of the cheapest, oldest, and easiest methods of water purification. It kills parasites, bacteria, and viruses within three minutes. However, it doesn't remove solutes, chemicals, or impurities of a higher boiling point than water, and it actually increases their concentration. You can allow it to cool and then settle to remove the particles. Just pour it out into your new container. Number two is granulated activated carbon. This uses a block of activated carbon and charcoal grains to absorb or cling to contaminants by chemical bonding. It's created from a high temperature process that creates a matrix of millions of microscopic pores and crevices. These pores trap microscopic particles and organic molecules. The larger the block, the higher the surface area and the better the filtration. A one-pound activated carbon block provides anywhere from 60 to 150 acres of surface area. Why is the range so large? It's because the efficacy depends on the type of carbon, the amount used, the design of the filter, the rate of water flow, how long the filter has been used, and the type of impurities that the filter previously removed, as these can get stuck and interact with new impurities. Activated carbon, it's the most common technology used in home filter systems like refrigerator filters and ice maker filters. From what I've read, it removes around 81 chemicals from water, including volatile organic compounds, at least 14 types of pesticides, 12 types of herbicides, and many gases. It removes around 90% of chlorine, including chloramines, free chlorine, and trihalomethanes, or chlorine byproducts. They can filter certain microorganisms and organic chemicals, like PCBs and trichloroethylene, as well as sediment. They may remove mercury and lead, but only a few carbon filter systems are certified for the removal of heavy metals. 
So this is something to consider for our Newark residents who are still dealing with the lead crisis, as Shay and I talked about in the last episode. Bacteria can grow downstream of the filter, so backwashing or frequent replacement is needed. It's recommended that refrigerator filters are replaced every six months and carbon filter water pitchers every two months or every 40 gallons. On the downside, activated carbon can't remove nitrates, fluoride, or arsenic. It generally doesn't affect total dissolved solids, hardness, heavy metals, asbestos, cysts, coliform, or radium. And actually, improper maintenance can lead to dangerous levels of bacteria building in the filter, similar to a kitchen sponge. The effectiveness of chlorine removal decreases and contaminants in the overloaded filter may discharge back into the water. That's why it's so important to change your filters at the specified intervals. A similar method, bone char filter medium, is also carbon-based and it does remove heavy metals like lead and aluminum as well as fluoride and bromine. And activated alumina removes fluoride as well. So there are similar methods that do remove fluoride. Number three, distillation. Distillation is a process of vaporizing or boiling water and then cooling or condensing it in a separate compartment into drinkable liquid water. So your contaminants get left behind in the original compartment. Distillation removes minerals and salts, sediments, parasitic microorganisms like bacteria and viruses, heavy metals like lead, mercury, and arsenic, and chemicals with a high boiling point, as these get left behind in the original compartment. On the downside, though, distillation can't remove chlorine or volatile organic compounds and oils, It can't remove contaminants of a similar boiling point to water, and droplets of unvaporized liquid could be carried with the steam, and since the water didn't boil, it could carry contaminants as well. Distillation is slow and costly, as it only purifies small quantities of water. Additionally, herbicides and pesticides with boiling points less than water can become concentrated in the water product because they boil before the water. Distillation requires large amounts of energy. And finally, distilled water can be acidic, it lacks minerals, and it has a flat taste. Number four, ion exchange. This method uses bead-like spherical resins or zeolite-packed columns to soften water. Zeolite is just aluminosilicate minerals. Ion exchange replaces certain ions like magnesium and calcium with sodium or potassium. Water is passed through the resins and the contaminants get trapped in the resins. Ion exchange must be regularly recharged with harmless replacement ions. And the two most common forms of ion exchange are softening and deionization. Ion exchange removes toxic ions and heavy metals like lead, mercury, iron, cadmium, and arsenic as well as nitrate, radium, and many others. Water softeners are good for plumbing that tends to accumulate mineral buildup. Hard water can leave deposits that clog pipes. So this is a good method for people who have hard water in their home. On the downside, water softening 
results in water that is high in sodium content, so it's not optimal for watering plants with. The other ion exchange method is deionization. So this process involves cation and anion exchange resins. The cation exchange resins take out cations, or positively charged ions, like sodium, calcium, and aluminum, and it puts back the hydrogen ion, H+. The anion exchange resins take anions, or negatively charged ions, like chloride, and put back hydroxyl ion, which is OH-. The hydrogen ion and the hydroxyl ion then come together and form pure water. The resin must be regenerated once it has exchanged all of its hydroxyl and hydrogen ions for charged contaminants in the water. This method removes ions and contaminants that lack electric charge as well, like dissolved inorganics and salts. It requires a low initial capital investment, but on the downside, it does have high long-term operating costs. It also doesn't remove living microorganisms like viruses and bacteria or organics. In fact, microorganisms can attach to the resins, providing a culture media for rapid bacterial growth and pyrogen formation. Pyrogens are bacterial products that, when ingested, cause symptoms in their host. Also, deionization does remove electrolytes. A similar method, called electrodeionization, involves passing water between positive and negative electrodes through ion exchange resins. Another related method, which also uses an electric field and a physical barrier, is electrodialysis reversal. In this method, electric current moves dissolved particles through a series of ionic membranes, and this movement gradually removes contaminants. Next up, we have mechanical filtration. We're going to talk about microporous basic filtration and reverse osmosis. So, number five is microporous basic filtration. This is a blanket term for any filter that contains small holes to remove large contaminants. Fibers or materials are compressed to form a matrix that retains particles by random adsorption or entrapment making this a good pre-filter option. So there are several different kinds of microporous basic filtration that we're gonna talk about. There's coarse filtration, microfiltration, ultrafiltration, and nanofiltration. As you can guess, all of these methods filter progressively smaller and smaller contaminants. So coarse filtration, also called particle filtration, can use anything from a one millimeter sand filter to a one micron cartridge filter. A micron is just a micrometer. A one micron filter can remove bacteria, cryptosporidium, and other harmful microbes. Even smaller yet, we have microfiltration, which ranges from 1 to 0.1 micron pores. A standard micron size common in this class is 0.2 microns. This is small enough to block heavy metals such as lead and copper bacteria, and large parasites such as Giardia and Cryptosporidium. However, microfiltration will not block viruses or radium because these things are smaller than the specified pore size. Next, we have ultrafiltration. This uses polymer membranes, and it can remove pyrogens, endotoxins, DNA and RNA fragments, and dissolved substances. 
and the smallest microporous basic filtration method is nanofiltration. This filters water on an ionic level. It removes pharmaceuticals and estrogenic compounds. So overall, microporous basic filtration is economical. It removes particles, sediment, dirt, cysts, and effectively 98% of suspended solids. It removes most colloids, turbidity, and some heavy metals above the rated size. It produces the highest quality water for the least amount of energy. It's quick, and it doesn't alter taste significantly. On the downside, though, this method won't remove dissolved inorganics like phosphates, nitrates, hard water ions like calcium and magnesium, salts, and radium. It's not effective against viruses, and it can't remove chemical contaminants below the pore size. It also requires filter replacement, but pretty much all of these methods will require that at some point. Number six, reverse osmosis. We all know osmosis from biology, but in case you didn't pay attention in biology, osmosis is when water goes from lower to higher concentration of solute through a semi-permeable membrane, resulting in equilibrium. I like to think of the mnemonic, salt sucks. So wherever there's salt, that's where water will go. But you want the water to go away from the salt during filtration. So with reverse osmosis, mechanical pressure forces water through a semi-permeable membrane from higher to lower concentration of solution. The pore size is about 0.0005 microns, slightly larger than the size of a water molecule and it removes only molecules larger than water. It's the most economical method to remove 90 to 99.5% of all contaminants. It excludes or retains virtually all ions and dissolved molecules, including salts and sugars. It strongly rejects over 99% of more charged polyvalent molecules, so those with a charge of plus two, for example but only 95% of weakly ionized or monovalent ions, like sodium, which has a charge of plus one. It's capable of removing probably the broadest spectrum of contaminants on the market by itself, including dissolved solids, turbidity, asbestos, bacteria, viruses, protozoa like Giardia and Cryptosporidium, heavy metals like lead, mercury, and arsenic, hard water minerals like calcium and magnesium, fluoride, bacterial products like pyrogens, endotoxins, DNA, and RNA, radioactive contaminants like radium, plutonium, and strontium, many dissolved organics, chlorinated pesticides and most heavier weight volatile organic compounds, and colloids. So, Reverse osmosis removes a pretty large and impressive range of molecules and atoms. It requires minimal maintenance. However, this is an investment, and the flow rates are pretty slow, usually limited to a certain gallons per day rating, and it involves a storage tank, so it does consume more water than it puts out. It's also inconvenient because it requires installation, so it might be a little bit hard to get a plumber to come out and install your RO filter during a pandemic. So it's not cheap or convenient for the average consumer. 
It doesn't remove certain pesticides, chlorine, and solvents that are small enough to pass through the membrane. And furthermore, it may remove essential minerals. However, home reverse osmosis units usually include a carbon filter, which removes chlorine, a reverse osmosis membrane, and a remineralizing filter for taste, and some even balance pH for you. So compared to all the other filters, this is probably the most effective. Unless well-maintained, though, algae and other microbes can colonize the membrane. So just to pause real quick, we talked about some methods that produce demineralized water, such as distillation, deionization, reverse osmosis, and nanofiltration. What's the verdict about removing ions from your water? Because on one hand, some people would say you're losing electrolytes, which are beneficial. But on the other hand, other people say that this is like the purest water that you can get. So, the World Health Organization investigated demineralized water since about 1980. At water hardness over 5 millimoles per liter, a higher incidence of gallstones, kidney stones, joint pathologies, and arthritis was observed. Minerals can form insoluble lead salts in the pipes, which can reduce flow. However, dissolved magnesium and calcium can make the water alkaline and help protect against nutritional deficiency. Also, demineralized water increases diuresis, which is the frequency of peeing, and electrolyte loss, with decreased serum potassium. And as a heads up, it's not good for brass plumbing and can actually increase the risk of leaching toxic metals like lead and cadmium. Even phosphate ion can reduce the corrosion of lead pipes. Also, demineralized water can increase the risk of bacterial contamination. On the other hand, manufacturers say that minerals in water cause many diseases, and most beneficial minerals come from food, not water. So the jury's still out on this one. Next up, we have chemical disinfection methods. Disinfection kills harmful microbes like viruses and bacteria. Some examples you might have heard of include norovirus, salmonella, cholera, campylobacter, and shigella. This method is less effective against protozoa. So for chemical disinfection, we have chlorination and iodine. Number seven, chlorination or bleach. Bleach is sodium hypochlorite or household grade chlorine. This method is convenient among backpackers, campers, and travelers because it can come as tablets or liquid. It's useful if you're drinking tap or collecting water directly from a natural source. It's cheap and it kills bacteria, viruses, giardia, and norovirus. With liquid chlorine, you're going to want to use 8 drops per gallon or 2 drops per liter of household bleach. And you must allow it to stand for 60 minutes if you want to kill a norovirus and giardia. Chlorine levels up to 4 milligrams per liter or 4 parts per million is considered safe in the drinking water according to the CDC and the EPA. But we're going to talk about regulatory thresholds a little bit later. On the downside, chlorination has an unpalatable taste. It doesn't kill protozoa. And actually, chlorine is toxic in high doses. If inhaled, it can cause heart disease or spinal deformities in offspring and is risky for people with thyroid problems. 
I'll link these studies in the show notes. Also, chlorination forms disinfection byproducts like trihalomethanes, haloacetic acids, chlorite, bromate, and chloroform, which can lead to health issues and are actually carcinogenic in large quantities and are bad for the environment. Chloroform is toxic to the liver and kidneys, and brominated trihalomethanes are also genotoxic, cytotoxic, and mutagenic. So they can cause mutations and are also toxic to cells and DNA. These health risks can be minimized by removing as many organics from the water as possible before chlorination. Later on, chloramination was developed. This is a similar method. However, it does generate nitrates and corrode lead pipes. And actually, a 2017 study in the Journal of Environmental Science found that chloramination renders water more toxic than untreated water. With chlorination, we have to consider that although it did prevent a lot of major diseases like cholera in the past, we have more advanced and sophisticated methods now, and that warrants us to take a deeper look at what chlorination is doing to our bodies and whether there could be a better method. Number eight, iodine. Iodine is available as a tablet, crystal, liquid, or tincture. So similar to chlorination, it's pretty convenient. You want to use two drops per quart, or if the water is cloudy, you can use 10 drops per quart. It kills bacteria, viruses, and some cysts like Giardia if allowed to sit for over 50 minutes, 5-0. It's lightweight, compact, and inexpensive. However, Iodine is six times less effective than chlorine against E. coli. It has an unpleasant taste, smell, a yellow color, it's slow, and it's not effective against cryptosporidium. It also poses a risk to people with thyroid problems, people on lithium, women over 50, pregnant women, children, and those with a shellfish allergy and it's also genotoxic in high doses. So overall, with chemical disinfection, at least these methods that I've mentioned, they may not be the way to go, unless you need a convenient and cheap method. Number nine, ozonation. Ozonation takes basic molecular oxygen and passes it through a chamber where it's exposed to UV light or a high voltage electrical charge called cold plasma discharge. This splits the oxygen molecule into higher energy ozone. Ozone is unstable, so it gives up an oxygen atom, which provides a powerful oxidizing agent that is toxic to most waterborne organisms. It kills many microorganisms, including cryptosporidium. It's around 1,500 times more effective than chlorine as an oxidant, and it destroys 99.99% of microorganisms within five minutes. It doesn't mess with taste or smell since it's just oxygen, and there are fewer dangerous byproducts and no residual ozone is left in the water. However, ozonation doesn't remove chemicals, it's energy intensive, and ozone reacts with bromide ions in water to produce bromate, a suspected carcinogen. And with a maximum contaminant level of 10 parts per billion of bromate recommended by the EPA, ozonation can exceed this, so that's something to keep in mind. Number 10 is UV radiation. This involves 
irradiating water with UV lamps inside a purifier, which sterilizes bacteria and viruses, rendering them unable to reproduce. It's a sanitizer and it's germicidal. It kills around 99.99% of harmful organisms in water, including bacteria, microbes, cysts, and viruses like norovirus and hepatitis, as well as parasites and molds. It photooxidizes or breaks down other organic compounds as well. It's also quick, but it doesn't remove particles, colloids, ions, or heavy metals. It also doesn't physically remove bacteria or parasites. They just end up dead floating in the water. UV radiation is expensive, it requires electricity, and it's high maintenance. So this can end up racking you some major energy bills. Finally, number 11, desalination. This method purifies salt water or seawater. It can use a variety of methods actually, like distillation, reverse osmosis, freeze-thaw, or electrodialysis. It's still expensive though, and it's only economically practical for high-valued uses, such as in drought-prone areas. It also requires higher energy consumption and is more expensive. So, now putting it all together, my key suggestions for you would be to use a home water filter test to figure out what contaminants are present in your water. That will help you find the least expensive, but also safest and most effective and efficient way to purify your water. A free method, though, if you don't want to buy a home water filter test kit, is you can search EWG's tap water database and the EPA's federal reports on the public water supply in your city or town. Also, when hunting down a filter, I suggest you look for certifications. So, the National Sanitation Foundation, or the NSF, does have their own stamp, and you can look for other certifications as well. The NSF does have very stringent standards for which filters they will certify. My key suggestions for manufacturers or developers moving forward in the future is to not use brass for plumbing, but instead to use stainless steel or some other material that doesn't cause corrosion of pipes and leaching of heavy metals like cadmium or lead into the water supply, because this can cause serious health problems for the end users. Another thing to keep in mind is toxicity versus regulatory thresholds. So, the toxic levels of contaminants in water could be significantly lower than the regulatory threshold. The EPA might have maximum contaminant loads that are much higher than what a consumer might hope to drink in their water, and this is to provide a buffer in case of an environmental crisis. But we want to know this and we want to keep that in mind so that we aren't just looking at that way higher level as the standard that we want to achieve. Our standard should be at the toxic level, which could be significantly lower. Finally, I want to share a little tidbit of a conversation that I had with Shay last week when we were talking about what water filter systems we want to use. Yeah, so you've like researched your own area where you live, so mm-hmm. 
what methods are you going to use to treat your water? Yeah, so what I found in my water is a little bit scary. So my town is contaminated with trihalomethanes like chloroform and also radium and uranium uh, as recently as 2017, as well as nitrates in 2019. And water in a neighboring town contains aluminum. So I have to be really careful with radium, heavy metals, and those disinfection byproducts. So the method that I think that I'm gonna end up going with is reverse osmosis. 